Good evening. When we had the rain earlier, the creek really began to rise and it got to be quite full. And I was watching the flow and I could notice that there were eddies where the water is going around and also the main current flowing down. And one of those is going somewhere and one of them is not. (laughs) And though, you know, a, a given droplet of water will flow along for a while and then swirl around in an eddy for a while and then flow on down. A few days ago, uh, Andrea took me out to a park near here where you could really see this. There were several different tiers of water flowing down. They're called the ink wells. And it was very clear the way it would flow, swirl around, flow to the next level. It was quite beautiful, actually. And we can see this as an analogy for the path. The Buddha says, I do not say that final knowledge is achieved all at once. Rather, it is achieved by gradual training, gradual practice, gradual progress. So as we wend our way through various eddies and then getting back into the current, we're slowly traversing the path. And our skill and our understanding deepen in very beautiful ways. Jaya talked last night about the Four Noble Truths. And one way to see them is that they describe the dependent arising and ceasing of dukkha. Dukkha is conditioned. It has causes and supporting conditions, like tanha, craving. And the cessation of dukkha also has supporting conditions in the Eightfold Path. So this idea of conditionality is very important. We're going to be talking about it this evening. It's also called dependent arising or dependent co-arising, paticca samuppada. I'll probably just say dependent arising in this talk. And classically, we learn about the 12 links. That's the most common expression of dependent arising, which we've actually quoted in various pieces during this retreat. You know, that's where we begin with ignorance and we move through the sense spheres. I'm not going to name all of them, but we eventually come to contact, feeling tone, and then the the craving and the clinging that can come from that leading to becoming birth and eventually aging death and the suffering that, that goes with that. So these 12 links talk about how dukkha is conditioned. They describe an exposition of the second noble truth. But conditionality is actually more general than that. It lies at the basis not just of dukkha, but of all conditioned things. One meaning of the word dhamma is simply nature, how things work. And this is how things work. There's a quote from the Buddha. One who sees dependent arising sees the dhamma. And one who sees the dhamma sees dependent arising. So this general underlying principle can be expressed a little bit loosely as things change, but they don't change randomly. Okay, there's an underlying order, an orderly natural law to the universe. And these 12 links that connect ignorance to aging and death and the whole mass of suffering, as it says, is just one specific example. We go around and around, continuing to suffer. And tonight we'll explore a different 
application of this same principle, one that goes in a better direction. So the Upanisa Sutta, which is Samyutta Nikaya 12.23, shows how there is a natural pathway whereby the mind does not just go around and around in a circle, but it, it spirals in an onward leading direction, goes all the way from dukkha to liberation. So it's kind of an unfolding of the fourth noble truth, including its result, the third noble truth. And it's called proximate cause by the Buddha. That's one translation of Upanisa. But in the commentaries, they rename it Transcendent Dependent Arising. (laughs) They give it a fancier name. I actually like to call it Liberative Dependent Arising because it goes from suffering to liberation. Sometimes the gesture for a spiral is to spiral up, but maybe this evening we'll imagine that we're spiraling down, going deeper, Because as we practice, the mind settles and our awareness sinks down to subtler layers of the mind. Rather than just spinning on a surface, we penetrate down to the depths. There's a phenomenon in geometry called self-similarity where figures have a different shape as a similar shape at different scales. So, for example, if you see a, a coastline from an airplane, you know, it has a, a series of bays and promontories that we can see. But then if you get down to the level of meters, which you can't see from the plane, we see the same thing. You know, there's a boulder sticking out, and then there's a little change in the shoreline that we're walking along. still looks jagged. And down at the sub-millimeter scale, where we're looking at grains of sand, it's the same, right? Still jagged. Liberative dependent arising is kind of like that. It can describe the whole arc of the Buddhist path from now until our hardship, full liberation. It can also describe the arc of a long retreat, like this one one month or two months. And sometimes, at times, it can even describe the flow of a single sitting. So this is the beauty and depth of the Buddha's teachings. And I use the word describe there deliberately. Some teachings are prescriptive. They give us things to do. And some are more descriptive. And some are are both. They describe what unfolds as we do the practice. This one is mostly descriptive, which frees you from having to think that you have to do anything about what I'm saying tonight. So just relax through through the description. So liberative dependent arising points out a natural pathway That's the other key thing to know at the beginning. By doing the practices that we're doing, we are activating and sustaining this pathway. And this liberative pathway of supportive conditions brings in many of the teachings that we've talked about up to now. It emphasizes wholesome states, including faith and happiness and tranquility And we'll discuss it in pieces tonight, little sections of arc, if you will. And I'll maybe linger at the places where we haven't talked quite so much. The sections that I'm giving are not canonical divisions given by the Buddha, but you'll see that they're harmonious with the the suttas. So I find this teaching quite inspiring, and I hope that on... Hearing it, it might further your willingness to just let this process unfold. Don't get caught up in the map, but see the simplicity underneath it. It's really about learning to let go. 
So regular dependent arising goes around and around. Ignorance leads to dukkha, and then we meet that dukkha with ignorance again. And we go in another loop. But dukkha is the first step of liberative dependent arising also. But instead of meeting dukkha with reactivity, it comes from ignorance, we meet dukkha with our practice. Instead of grasping or pushing away, we do the radical act of letting things be, of not reacting to them. We have the trust to be with something painful or something pleasant without grasping at it. We have the confidence or the faith that there is another way to meet experience than our habitual ways of grasping and reacting. We've seen that all that pushing and pulling around pleasant and unpleasant doesn't really solve the predicament. So in other words, we meet dukkha with this quality of sadha, faith confidence, trust. This makes all the difference. This sets in motion a whole different set of conditions. It goes in a completely different direction. I've actually seen that in general, experiencing dukkha with some degree of awareness about it has the potential to open people up to new ways of seeing. I used to be a spiritual care volunteer in a hospital. And for a while, I worked in the department where people were recovering from brain injuries, typically strokes or vehicle accidents, particularly motorcycles. And the nature of these injuries is that they tend to happen quickly and then the recovery is lengthy. So these are people who were having a normal day that was suddenly disrupted by an event that they hadn't planned for. And now they were spending weeks or months with a lot of time on their hands. And I would talk with them. And many of them became quite reflective. During this time, they were reassessing what's important in their lives. Quite spontaneously, they were thinking about their relationship to ethics, to how they were spending their time, especially those who got into this by driving under the influence, for example. But we're all driving under the influence of the various compulsions that we have in our mind, in our lives. Jaya talked about tanha and the feeling that we're being driven or that we're addicted to these things that we crave. And sometimes we need a heavenly messenger, as they say, like aging or illness or death or some event to jolt us awake. So dukkha can lead to faith to aspiration, to devotion, beauty can arise out of suffering if we're able to orient our mind in that way. So we could call these first two links of dukkha and sata as the orientation of the mind. It's when we align with our deeper values and aspirations. And then the next stage that we enter is the wholesome result of following our heart. So there are five beautiful qualities that form a a cluster or a constellation that centers on happiness and tranquility, leading to a collected and unified mind. So I'm grouping these five together because they appear together in quite a number of suttas. They've even been called the gladness pentad because they start with gladness. So they are gladness, joy, tranquility, 
happiness and concentration. And in Pali, there are pamoja, piti, pasadi, sukha, and samadhi. You'll see several different translations of those. If you read the text, it's not so consistent, so I'm going to try to stick with those ones this evening. That's not the only possibility. James talked right at the beginning of the retreat about the importance of wholesome states. And many of the other teachers have mentioned it also, the lightness and ease that can underlie our practice if we tune into it. Why are these wholesome states so integral? It's because they provide deep nourishment and fortification for the mind, which are provisions we're going to need on our journey. So let's take a look at this gladness pentad from the Dhammapada. One who drinks in the Dharma sleeps happily with a clear mind. The sage always delights in the Dharma taught by the noble ones. A practitioner filled with delight and pleased with the Buddha's teachings attains happiness the stilling of formations, the state of peace. So this gladness pentad appears in several different ways in the teachings, and we'll see, we'll see those in a moment. But what's important to realize up front is that this sequence is natural. It's like a cascade that gets triggered, and then they, they all kind of just unfold. It doesn't even have to be exactly in that order. That's why I called them a cluster or a constellation. There are some suttas where they appear exactly in that order and other ones where it's slightly different. I would go so far as to say that the emergence of joy and happiness and calm is necessary for the deepening of practice at some point. Because these beautiful qualities lead on toward clear seeing and insight And the gladness pentad is also a foretaste of some of the aspects of freedom. Liberation includes no greed, no aversion, no delusion. And that's a very distinctive form of happiness. Bhikkhu Inalio says the entire scheme of the gradual training can be seen as a progressive refinement of joy. So I want to read from a sutta that shows this sequence of the five emerging out of sadha, like it does in liberative dependent arising. And in this other sutta, it it emerges in the form of skillful reflection on the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. When a practitioner considers thus, I am possessed of unwavering confidence in the Buddha, they gain inspiration in the meaning gain inspiration in the Dhamma, gain gladness connected with the Dhamma. When one is glad, joy arises. When one is joyful, the body becomes tranquil. In one whose body is tranquil, feels happiness. In one who is happy, the mind becomes concentrated. So there they are unfolding right in order. And the same is said for reflecting on one's confidence in the Dhamma and the Sangha, And also when reflecting on one's own virtue and generosity can bring forth this same delight and inspiration that unfolds all the way to concentration. It's interesting that this joy is independent of external circumstances. It's arising from an internal reflection. It's very important at some point in practice, to discover forms of joy and happiness that are internal, that are a true refuge coming from inside. I also want to read from a sutta called the Chaitanya Sutta because it demonstrates the naturalness of these five. Chaitanya means volition. 
And the sequence starts with virtue in this case. So the Buddha says, Practitioners, for a virtuous person, one whose behavior is virtuous, no volition need be exerted. Let non-regret arise in me. It is natural that non-regret arises in a virtuous person, one whose behavior is virtuous. For one without regret, no volition need be exerted. Here we go. Let gladness arise in me. It is natural that gladness arises in one without regret. For one who is glad, no volition need be exerted. Let joy arise in me. For it is natural that in one who is glad, joy will arise. For one with a joyful mind, no volition need be exerted. Let my body be tranquil. It is natural that the body of one with a joyful mind is tranquil. For one tranquil in body, no volition need be exerted. Let me feel happiness. And for one feeling happiness, no volition need be exerted. Let my mind be concentrated. It is natural that the, one of my, the mind of one feeling happiness is concentrated. It actually goes on with several more of the same steps in liberal, liberative dependent arising, but we'll stop here for now. The sutta goes on to say, thus one stage flows into the next, one stage fills up the next. So there's this sense of a natural flow. No volition. <laughs> wow. The way my teacher says this is, um, clinging is work. You have to be doing something to prevent this flow from happening. And grasping is the doing that gets in the way of unfolding this gladness pentad of beautiful qualities. And when, this, when these qualities begin to come into our practice, in whatever degree, even if it's a small amount or if it's a large amount, it's really beneficial to spend some time hanging out there, hanging out in the gladness pentad. We, we really need that often. And it's also true that some part of our heart tends to think, it would be so nice just to stay here forever. As if the aim of practice were to put the mind into this state of happiness and balance and just never leave, just stay there. Some people do try to do that. But it won't really work forever. Um, back in a prior stage, we activated the quality of sadha, our deepest aspiration. And so we know in our heart that we want to go all the way. And I'm here to say, just so you hear it, even this wholesome kind of happiness is not all the way. Our heart yearns for the deepest peace. And so it encourages us onward into unfamiliar territory. We continue on our journey, plunging onward toward the insights that can transform the mind. So we move on to the next section of the arc, which could be called Insight and Its Results. So the last step of the pentad that we were just on is samadhi, where all of those five come together. And the, the function of this beautiful and powerful mind is to see experience very clearly. These nourishment steps have cultivated a mind with some very important qualities, qualities that are characteristic of samadhi. So one of them is stability. Another one is well-being. And the third one is strength or confidence. In one of the description, the, the description of one of the states of jhana, it explicitly includes 
internal self-confidence in its definition. And this is also just generally true in states of samadhi. We have this strength. So these qualities enable us to see the three universal characteristics that we've talked about in a deep way, anicca, dukkha, and anatta. It's very interesting that they're somewhat contrasting to them. So stability, a stable mind is very good at seeing change. If we're standing on the bow of a reeling ship during a storm, so everything is shifting, we can't see very clearly if we're trying to look through binoculars, right? Compare that to landing on the shore and setting up a tripod and putting the binoculars on that. So much clearer, right? And we'd be able to see changes that we couldn't see when the whole ship was changing also. So in the same way, it's much easier to see fine-grained change in our experience with a deeply stable mind. When the mind is filled with well-being, deeply happy, we can actually see dukkha more clearly. It's as if we have a, a sheet, and when it's spread out flat, it's flat and clean, very stable and clear. We can see a tiny wrinkle in it in a way that we wouldn't see that if it were rumpled up and dirty. One more wrinkle, one more spot, we would hardly notice. And strength and confidence when the mind is deeply settled in itself and able to meet all experience it can much more easily see the impersonal conditionality of experience just rolling on. We can shift into the peace of emptiness or selflessness in a way that we can't when the mind is caught up in doubt or skepticism or a lot of selfing. It's interesting. So this nourishment and fortification is preparing us, actually really preparing us for the important insights. So the next step after samadhi has a long name. It's called yata bhuta jnana dasana. Often translated as knowledge and vision of things as they are. We've heard that mentioned before. I think that's pretty good. Um, to be precise, Bhutta is a, a present participle of bhavati, to be. So it might be more like knowledge and vision of things as they have come to be. But that's kind of literal. Um, I think yata Bhutta is actually more like an idiom. Uh, it's meant to point to something more like seeing reality. Finally, we see down to the truth of what's going on here. And for me, these words from Lao Tzu capture the sense of this term. This is an excerpt from one of his poems. Always we hope someone else has the answer. Some other place will be better. Some other time it will all turn out. This is it. No one else has the answer. No other place will be better. And it has already turned out. This is it. This is kind of what this step is about. We see, we know, not intellectually. We really touch it directly. So this is pointing towards insight. So there are all different types and experiences of insight. And they're all great. They're all important. Sometimes we get a, a personal insight in, about our own life. 
Sometimes we see a more universal truth about life. And sometimes the clouds completely part, perhaps just for a moment, and we see the brilliance of the full moon. A friend of mine was recently waiting in line at a store, and as she approached the cashier, who in her mind she was thinking of as an older woman, uh, my friend noticed a thought enter her mind. Wow, she has quite a few wrinkles. Maybe some cream would make a difference for her. (laughs) And just as she had that thought, the cashier said to her, are you over 60? (laughs) And my friend said, "Um, yes. (laughs) And the cashier smiled and said, oh, good. You qualify for the senior discount. Would you like that? It was the first time my friend had ever been offered the senior discount, ever. (laughs) And she had to pause. (laughs) Here she had been looking outside at aging, but not really turning around and seeing it in herself, right? So this is an insight. (laughs) She felt an impact from that. And it kind of kept working on her (laughs) over the next few days um, in her mind and heart. So insight can really come at any time. Sometimes the universe is waking us up in these ways. And sometimes we see quite deeply, you know, entering maybe into a whole new territory that we haven't been in before. One of my teachers was a very wise Sri Lankan monk named Venerable Katakurunde Nyanananda. And he died in 2018. Actually, the date of his death was February 22nd, so the anniversary was just a couple of days ago, and he's been on my mind. I was fortunate enough to meet him about three months before he died. When I went to see him in Sri Lanka, he was pretty frail and of ill health at that time, and a lot of people wanted to see him because he was very well known. And you could only have five minutes with him because he had very little strength and he would sort of pull himself together to meet with people for a while each day. And there were a lot of people. So when I entered the... It was interesting that when I entered the room, I hadn't met him before in person. And um, before he even saw me, before I had even been introduced... He said, magic of the mind. His English was quite good. Um, And this is a a wonderful book. It's the title of one of his books, actually. And it's one that has been very meaningful in my practice. And it includes a creative vignette that he wrote that captures the essence of the next phase of the liberative, dependent, arising. It's about a magic show. So I'll read this excerpt. The famous magician whose miraculous performances you have thoroughly enjoyed on many an occasion is back again in your town. The news of his arrival has spread far and wide and eager crowds are now making for the large hall where he is due to perform today. You, too, buy a ticket and manage to enter the hall. There is already a scramble for seats, but you are not keen in securing one, for you have entered with a different purpose in mind. You have a bright idea to outwit the magician, to play a trick on him yourself. So you cut your way through the thronging crowds and stealthily creep into some concealed corner of the stage. The magician enters the stage through the dark curtains, clad in his pitchy black suit. Black boxes containing his secret stock in trade are also now on the stage. The performance starts, and from your point of vantage, you watch. And as you watch with sharp eyes every movement of the magician, you now begin to discover, one after the other, 
the secrets behind those breathtaking miracles of your favorite magician. The hidden holes and false bottoms on the magic boxes, the counterfeits and secret pockets, the hidden strings and buttons that are pulled and pressed under the cover of the frantic waving of his magic wand. So very soon you see through his bag of wily tricks so well that you're able to discover his next surprise in advance. And his tricks no longer deceive you because you see them for what they are. Yata Bhuta Jnana Dasana. When we see how things are put together, we won't be fooled by the magic show again. There's a kind of power in seeing how the mind concocts its own experience. It's being constructed, and not by anyone. Experience is unfolding. When we have insights like this, we don't quite unsee them. We can't really unsee them. So this is said that said at this point that we have been freed from the enchantment, from the spell that we had previously been other under. So this next phase is called disenchantment, nibida in Pali. And sometimes there's a sort of a release that happens right when we see something. Certain insights come with release. But more likely, there's an unfolding process of letting go that happens over time based on what we have seen. To be clear, disenchantment can at times be somewhat uncomfortable. When we see through a view or a pattern that has been in place for a long time, it can feel disturbing, especially if it was something that we were protecting ourselves with. We thought we had to protect ourselves with, and then we see through it. There can be a sense of groundlessness or a a shift in what we thought was a foundation. And at such times, we need to recall those earlier qualities that we've talked about. Trust, confidence, and also the wholesome happiness and joy that comes from within. These things protect the mind from being shaken when the rug gets pulled out. When we were enchanted, we were like a blind person who couldn't see for herself and had to trust someone else to tell us what's right, what's true, what's good. This is the image that's used in the suttas, a blind person. And then the vision is restored and we can see for ourselves what is helpful for our path, and what is not. In particular, it's said that we understand that clinging to the five aggregates will not be so helpful. So part of the aim of practice is to restore correct eyesight so that we can see for ourselves, so that we can see without enchantment. And the clearer our vision becomes the less interested we are in pursuing things that don't support our deepest values and don't lead toward the genuine happiness and peace. So we're moving now into the next quality, which is called viraga, often translated as dispassion, but an equally valid translation is fading away. The Pali has two different meanings has two different uh, images associated with it. So the fading away of grasping, grasping at experiences that are not fulfilling, we slowly have a tendency to do less of that, which is nice. So this manifests in various ways. That's pretty common at some stages of the Dharma path that we lose interest in certain pursuits as we fall in love with the Dharma. Some other things fall by the wayside. Actually, several of us teachers, I think, have mentioned our prior careers. And for some people, it can be hard to maintain the energy for a regular 
job once there's a strong pull toward retreat practice or toward the wish for liberation. But a little bit more universally, we can observe habits fading once we see them clearly. A few years ago, a student told me that they had noticed a voice in their mind that was assigning a top-level emotional quality to each person that they saw as they walked down the street. They were walking and their mind was going shy, tired, upset, deluded. (laughs) Ongoing judgments about each person. (laughs) And once they saw this, it was a little bit horrifying, right? You know, this voice had probably been influencing their view of people for a long time. And seeing it helped, although it wasn't that comfortable, But the habit didn't stop right away. They had to keep catching it in the act and being mindful of this sort of painful habit. But it did feel wholesome to notice it as it was happening. And then slowly they watched how the energy of that habit diminished over time. Sometimes the habit wasn't even there. They would realize it wasn't happening and then it would return for a while. But it was definitely fading over over time under this light of awareness. So this is viraga, the fading away. And it also happens in deep meditation. There might come a time where experience itself begins to fade. As we withdraw from the grasping and compulsion that drive us to seek or push away experience, there's kind of a softening of perception The mind gets quite subtle. And more and more we see the cessation of experience and the mind is balanced enough to be okay with that. Even consciousness can cease. Adyashanti said, we think that we resist things because they are there, but actually they are there because we resist them. So this process of clear seeing and disenchantment and dispassion or fading away, it might cascade very quickly or it might unfold over a long time. But eventually, eventually the mind will be liberated from the things that tangle it up, from this tendency to grasp and and hence to suffer. So the next step in liberative dependent arising is liberation, vimuti, which means release or deliverance or emancipation. It comes from the verb vimuchati, which is, I I mentioned, because it's a passive verb, meaning to be released. It's relevant that the verb is passive. It's not the active form, munchati, to release. But it's passive, to be released. So in other words, we don't do it. We don't do this. And there's a set of stock, sort of a stock description that's in many, many suttas. Seeing thus... The instructed noble disciple experiences disenchantment towards the eye, towards forms, toward eye consciousness, toward eye contact, and whatever feeling arises with eye contact as condition, whether painful or pleasant or neither painful nor pleasant, feels disenchantment towards the ear, etc., all the six sense bases towards the mind, towards whatever feeling arises with mind contact is conditioned. Experiencing disenchantment, one becomes dispassionate. Through dispassion, the mind is liberated. When it is liberated, there comes the knowledge. It is liberated. So note the passive voice. Through dispassion, the mind is liberated. When it is liberated, there comes the knowledge. It is liberated. So note also that liberation is not the last step. 
The last step is the knowledge that something binding the mind has been released. It's interesting. And the Pali for this last step is asava kaye jnana, knowledge of the destruction of the taints, kind of technical. Um, and in some places this knowledge is framed actually as a reflection that one does about what has been released and what has not yet been released, what still remains. But I like to see it kind of experientially. So I like to see this last step as the phase of integration, the process of taking into our very cells what it is that we know in our heart. And it can take years. It's hard to know all at once what we've seen in a glimpse, if the glimpse was deep enough. So remember this image of the stream flowing with the rainwater. The Upanisa Sutta, the Sutta on Liberative Dependent Arising, ends with such an image. Just as when rain descends heavily upon some mountaintop, the water flows down along the slope and fills the clefts, gullies, and creeks. These being filled, fill up the pools. These being filled, fill up the ponds. These being filled, fill up the streams. These being filled, fill up the rivers. And the rivers being filled, fill up the great ocean. In the same way, Suffering, dukkha, is the supporting condition for faith. Faith is the supporting condition for gladness. Gladness for joy. Joy for tranquility. Tranquility for happiness. Happiness for concentration. Concentration for the knowledge and vision of things as they, as they have come to be. The knowledge and vision of things as they have come to be for disenchantment disenchantment for dispassion. Dispassion is the supporting condition for liberation, and liberation is the supporting condition for the knowledge of the destruction of the taints. So there are eddies that go around and around, and there's the current that flows to the ocean. A given droplet of water will naturally flow from high to low, if it lets go into that flow. Maybe it will swirl in an eddy for a while, but we can trust that it will again enter the current. It's not always so linear, like these 12 terms. Please don't get caught up in another list. But there is an underlying orderliness the way the law of gravity underlies the flow of the stream downhill. So if you'll allow me to slightly mix my elemental metaphors, I want to read a poem about the wind, about the air element instead of the water element. It's called Without a Doubt. Could be... You feel like a tiny bird flapping hard, hard as you can into the wind. Though there is no sign that says a dead end, you are not going anywhere and can't imagine you ever will. Could be that all that fluttering exhausts you until you stop all that trying and turn away from whatever it is you think you are flying toward. And then perhaps you understand, not with your head, with your whole being, that wherever the wind is going to go, it will go. Could be you find yourself saying yes to the wind, the same wind, you know this, that fills your lungs. Could be that it is so beautiful, this new kind of flying, that you forget to be frightened that you do not know what will happen next. Could be you've never been so aware 
how infinite the sky. So it's said that the Buddha, just after his awakening, was sitting still by the Naranjara River. And he had the thought, it is painful to dwell without reverence and deference. Let me then honor, respect, and dwell in dependence only on this Dhamma to which I have become fully enlightened. So even the Buddha felt devotion and reverence for the Dhamma. So let go. Let go into the truth of nature, of how things are. Let's sit quietly for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.